Welcome to Diabretic, a podcast where a T1D artist and a T1D expert come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks. I am type 1 diabetic, artist, baker, creator of all things. And in this episode, we're talking about fugas and exploring <laughs> diabetes through art with Dr. Samuel Tulin. All right, we're talking about fugas. Fugas. Um, <laughs> the spelling is insane. Insane. I was like, Steve, how do you spell this? It's just French. <laughs> I was trying to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> to look at pictures if you've ever i mean if you've ever looked up pictures of fugas it's most most of the time kind of leaf looking or yeah i don't know slices generally speaking anyway yeah that's the classic a kind of leaf yeah. shape but uh fugas which uh for those who want to search it right now since you're listening it's f-o-u-g-a-s-s-e <laughs> You're welcome, Melissa. Okay, nobody would have guessed that. Like, Listen, um, <laughs> it's just French spelling, right? I, so it's cool. Even yeah. for French spelling, it's okay. weird. Well, either way, fugas <laughs> is a French bread, given uh, what we're just talking about and its name. But the thing that m usually sets this apart and makes it uh, identifiable is its shape. Um, the nice thing about fugas, though, is that uh, you can use generally speaking, a pretty standard dough. And in fact, that's usually what uh, what we do. We have our kind of basic white bread dough. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, when we make fugas, this is the recipe that we use. Um, which is a little is a little note that uh, I actually picked up from uh, our old Richard Bertinet, <laughs> who uh, he's uh, amazing. But anyway, that's not what this is about. <laughs> we will have to honestly we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do an episode that talks about Bertinet because uh he's amazing um <laughs> but so look him up uh yes um so we just used our regular white bread dough recipe that uh is up on the blog and the difference here though is instead of slightly deflating and then rolling it up shaping it as a loaf and putting it in a loaf pan or one of the other, like as rolls or whatever else. Instead, you divide it up usually into about three pieces, but it kind of depends on how much dough you make. And then uh, kind of flatten them out with your fingertips on the table so you have a flat-ish piece of dough. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. And No, in fact, that's, that's one what's of the so things. great about it. <laughs> yeah, because uh, what I have found is that when we do this, uh, when I cut the dough up into pieces, they're always different shapes. <laughs> I can never have any uniformity in any of this stuff. <laughs> but the nice thing is... Which drives Steve crazy. It kind of does. it's like, who cares? It kind of does. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I guess I'm a little bit obsessive about the kind of aesthetics. <laughs> but, um, but the nice thing is that because we are playing around with their shape a little bit, uh, it doesn't really make a difference. So the idea here is you have this uh, now flattened piece of dough and you'll use some kind of tool to just cut through to the table so that you create these little kind of slits in the dough. Um, there are a couple, of, like you mentioned, a couple of shapes that are pretty standard. Yeah. Right? 
Um, leaf shapes are super common, and uh, we will have a couple of pictures on the Instagram post, and then also some things uh, possibly in the blog. We'll see if we do a Fugas post there too. But uh, but there are a couple of other things. You can kind of go wild with this a little yeah. bit. I've seen a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, people fill them, like fill the spaces mm-hmm. with different things or, you know, I mean, sky's the limit really. <laughs> yeah. And so depending on what shape your little piece of dough is, as you're cutting these little slits into the dough, you kind of spread it with your fingers a little bit. So you open those up into holes. And so you get these networks of kind of skinny pieces of dough mm-hmm. and uh, top it with whatever you feel like topping it <laughs> with and pop it in the oven. Um, you can put it on a sheet pan if that's what you have. If you have a stone or a baking steel or something like that, slide it in on that. Um, it bakes pretty hot and pretty fast. And what comes out is basically this interconnected breadstick. I was going to say breadstick. <laughs> yeah. And so they're super, uh, they're really good to kind of tear apart and dip in things. Yeah, they're really fun to eat. So Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we played around with some toppings this time. Um, I've never used a tar on a fugas, but uh, <laughs> we went with that this time. There's the classic like salt salted with olive oil sometimes with rosemary something like that parmesan mm. i mean Parm. yeah some Go meats, wild <laughs> right i've seen like salami Ooh, with that would have been par- good yeah <laughs> um yeah various veggies too i've seen people using veg on top veg, veg uh, <laughs> oh my uh. <laughs> anyway um the one of the kind of keys here and maybe this is a bread tip for this episode <laughs> um fugas can be a little tricky to move around because you now have these really skinny thin pieces of dough and so if you tried to like pick it up with your hands mm. it would just stretch and be really hard to, to maneuver um if you have a peel like a pizza peel uh th- it'll be a huge huge help mm-hmm. with this but there are two things that can be uh really helpful in being able to actually move and use this thing. First, you can just put it on parchment and then cut it and then spread it and then you've got it on something. So you can just slide the parchment in and that's really handy. Um, But if you want to go wild a little bit and like (laughs) try it out. Steve. (laughs) This is wild for Steve. (laughs) I'm so wild. Um, (laughs) Throw... Throw a little bit of uh, semolina flour or cornmeal on your countertop, maybe with a little bit of all-purpose flour too, to kind of mix around. But um, that will act as little ball bearings. And so it will slide easier onto a peel or a baking sheet or whatever it is that you're uh, sliding onto. So Yeah, and it does bake a little different when you don't have the parchment in between. So there will be a little bit of difference. For sure. You get that direct contact, and so you get a little more browning on the bottom if that's the case, which can be a good thing. It can also, uh, maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you want it a little more uniformly browned sure. top and bottom, and so parchment would be your best friend. So, yeah, so uh, check out our discussion of the Fugas over on Instagram if you haven't yet, and uh, go make this for yourself. <laughs> 
All right. Our guest today is Dr. Samuel Tulin. He is an artist, composer, sound designer, educator, and researcher who explores through art space and place, especially how the human and the technological come together within those contexts. And one of the uh, kind of streams of that work has been exploring this human and technological interaction in the context of diabetes. And so much of our conversation will likely center around that. Uh, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Steve. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course. Um, we, we like to start first off by asking this broader question. What is your relationship with bread and what is your relationship with diabetes? Yeah, um, so I'll start with... I'll start with bread, I guess. Um, I love bread. Um, I, I've, I've been into bread from a very young age. Um, growing up, uh, my father was always baking bread. And so, mm. you know, all my kind of school lunches had sandwiches with my dad's bread. Um, but uh, I like all kinds of bread, really. And, and I mean, I was just as into store-bought sandwich bread, to be honest. Um, yes. But... <laughs> But I, I enjoyed that and I, I enjoyed like trying other breads when I would go to my grandparents' house. Uh, that was in Maine, you know, I, I was oh, yeah. growing up in, in uh, New Brunswick in Canada. And uh, so then there's different bread options um, in Maine. And, um, and now I live in Montreal, which is an amazing city to be into bread in. Cause there's oh, about, very much so. Yeah, there's about, uh, I don't know, 10... 10 great bakeries, say within a 15 minute bike ride from where I live. Um, and so it's pretty much wow. like a, a weekend morning ritual to go out and get some fresh bread first thing in the morning. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing. I, uh, I'm quite jealous as someone who is in a, <laughs> uh, fairly smaller city in the Midwest. Uh, we have, yeah, we have one good bakery in town, uh, and that yeah. does breads anyway. And, uh, they're they're only open four days a week, I think now. So, it's yeah, it's a struggle, but that's a that's great. Um, yeah, and I it's funny because we uh, we often have a lot of conversations on here about homemade breads, uh, understandably, mm -hmm. given a yeah. lot of the theme. But uh, we've also talked a little bit about how like I also have some pretty uh, interesting memories, a lot of nostalgia around store-bought bread especially store-bought white bread i yeah. just have this like a childhood association <laughs> with turkey with mayo on white bread i don't know what it is but it's, well, it's uh, yeah well that's it that's i mean that's a winning combo for sure <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's also fun it's kind of like this grass is always greener sort of thing i mean we were yes. my brother and i were getting this amazing bread our dad was making and i can remember sometime my my brother like actually buying a loaf of of white bread just just because he wanted like that store-bought white bread like it was like a treat yeah. you know yes yeah because <laughs> yeah, it's uh you know for me at this point i don't uh i don't usually buy or eat that myself so on those occasions mm -hmm. it does it's kind of this uh that's funny to think of of the kind of white bread as as a treat that's great mm -hmm. um yeah so, uh, so what then is your relationship with diabetes? Um, yeah, so I've, I've, uh, been living with diabetes for 
for nearly 20 years now. Um, okay. I was, I was diagnosed just after I turned 18. Um, and um, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of this will come out in our, in our conversation, but uh, I guess now what I would say is probably for the first uh, 15 years or so of having diabetes, um, mm. I approached it really as, uh, well, obviously a huge part of my life, but it wasn't something that I um, kind of incorporated very much into other aspects of, of either my kind of professional mm. or artistic life. And then around yeah. five years ago, um, that changed a bit. And I started to think of it more in terms of, uh, of both, you know, both the, um, sort of academic work I was pursuing and, yeah. and the art artworks that I was making. Um, so there was a, a bit of a shift that's been more recent in my life. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. And, uh, yeah, so you, you mentioned that you were, uh, eight just after you turned 18. So yes, in adulthood. Yeah then mm -hmm. right so yeah you had yeah, spent technically yep almost uh almost two decades then prior to diagnosis um and one of the things that i'm often kind of uh curious about and interested in hearing a little bit about is what that kind of of shift was like at that time because that's a pretty kind of significant moment in general and a lot of things are moving yeah. and changing around that time and so what was it like with this kind of diagnosis inserting itself in the mix there yeah I, uh, it was it was pretty difficult um i was it was my first year at university just mm. before the christmas uh, kind of break um it was a lot to take in and um i think that it also precipitated some other health issues that that meant that throughout my undergraduate degree, I, I, I really wasn't feeling great. And, and I think some of the time there was a bit of, um, there was definitely frustration there in terms of, you know, this, this being this idealized time in, in right. you know, as, as a kind of popular narrative that, you know, mm -hmm. these are the best years of your life and everything. And right. I was kind of feeling like crap a lot of the time. Um, so that, that was a bit, <laughs> a bit hard and yeah. it was a bit it, you know it was a very just in terms of that initial diagnosis to just just that kind of the shock of um receiving that diagnosis was was difficult as well and a kind of a real exercise in uh, changing perspective i guess or or adapting to a another way of seeing my life yeah yeah that uh, that language of adapting to i think is really interesting um in the context mm -hmm. of diagnosis, because that that framing, the way it frames everything, right? It changes how everything is understood, the way we see and experience everything, and uh, yeah, that that juxtaposition you're talking through there with the popular narrative of the college years, your early twenties, or all that as the best years of your life. You're young and you're you have so much energy and all this stuff, but also on the other hand, uh, recently diagnosed with diabetes that I, especially those early months and things through the honeymoon periods and all that it's it's a it's a wild ride right yeah oh yeah for sure for sure so yeah. um so one of the things that uh that i have found really interesting and i think 
for me, intellectually stimulating about a lot of the work that I have seen of yours and the way that you talk into a lot of this work um, that you mentioned, uh, that it's been about the last five years or so that you have started kind of thinking about that experience with diabetes and technologies in the context of your work. Um, One of the sides of that that I have been particularly drawn to is the way that you are bringing together this uh, audio production and the production of visual art together, like using audio in producing art. How did you come to that space or that kind of collection of media um, in the in the process of your work? Because it's really fascinating. Oh, yeah, thanks. Thanks. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I came to art definitely through music. So being mm. attuned to to sound in the first place um, and kind of gradually, uh, I guess, from music and and being interested in recording my own music, branching out to uh, recording other sounds and working with those sounds as material to create stuff that's not necessarily musical, you know, some soundscape composition and yeah. some different forms of, of uh, audio art or sound art. Uh, and then actually kind of thinking that in relation to other media and visuals has, has been an even more recent step for me, um, I would say. And um, maybe, it, it, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting when I think about it. I think that it's especially come out in the work that I've done um, with diabetic data, actually, that that that's some of those projects have been re- really where that's coming out a bit more. This the, the sort of translation between different media uh, that's going on when you work with something um, like data that 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 can and that does kind of flow between different senses and understandings or potentially it it can yeah certainly and that some of those projects it is interesting to hear the way that uh that it was the work specifically around diabetes and all of that data that you use in the production of this work that that's the location that has started bringing together the audio and kind of visual or material um, productions all together there and yeah, one well, of the no, I, I I was just gonna say I like I like that you also brought in the you know you hit on that materiality too because because that's something that 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 really interests me and I think in some ways it's that idea of materiality that that ties the audio and and the visual together. Uh, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Steve. Yeah, well, and this uh, th- that point actually kind of reminds me of one of your projects that I remember seeing and reading about um, that had to do with the way that some of these uh, blood glucose or CGM uh, data are uh, used to produce different visualizations through um, sonification, but then also, and this was a really interesting piece here, um, experiential work with uh, kind of wearables that vibrate, yeah, like right, and so yeah. tying together the material experience of those who are experiencing the art with the visual um, and the the audio. Um, how 
How did you get to that place with the vibration? Because the vibration work, I think, is really interesting and also kind of central to how the visuals are produced, right? It is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And thank you again for that. And, and I mean, that, that idea of working with vibration is really tied, in fact, to the sort of the beginning for me in thinking about um, making art with diabetes, because actually what happened was um, I began a, a, a postdoc where I was um, one of my roles, one of my kind of main roles was to be a co-curator and coordinator of uh, a deaf and disability arts exhibition where mm. the focus was really on media arts and vibrotactile technology. So artists working um, with uh, the idea of vibration and, and, and wearables and, you know, things like cushions. We created a, mm, a yeah. vibrational floor for a work. Um, so these different forms of vibration, thinking through accessibility uh, in different ways and different sort of um, sense experiences and, and that sort of thing through vibration. And it was really um, not until I, I began doing that work uh, kind of as this coordinator and, and curator that um, I started to reflect on my own experience as a diabetic as something, you know, that could be interesting to make art about and with. And and we were collaborating with um, Viber Fusion Lab, uh, which is based out of London, Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was inspired to 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 kind of I'd, I'd explored a little bit with vibration and tactile transducers before and sound work. Um, but now here I was interested, I became interested in taking up that technology and that approach to think about my diabetic uh, data and like to, to try and use that data to, to drive some kind of uh, resonant or vibrational uh, experience that, that played out in two ways really in that work as you hit upon. Um, yeah. So the, uh, one part of it is is uh, the audience being able to to sort of feel the data, if you will, through through the vibrations that it produces? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then another part is kind of sending those vibrations through a material um, that is very prone to kind of amplifying the vibrations, and then laying out all my used test strips so so the actual the blood test strips that sort of help to produce the data in the first place yeah then then they're on this surface and and the vibrations from the data sort of make them bounce around and animate them so it's this stuff that's usually biomedical waste right that you, right. That you throw out and it's kind of given this different sort of life uh, in in this visual uh, so i video uh, i videoed the the sort of animation of those test strips as they were being um vibrated by that data uh, so and and then so in the work you you see that on a screen you see those test strips and the sort of patterns that are being produced at the same time as as you can feel it uh feel the data as well that's a and that the conceptualization of this piece as a whole is uh, fantastic. Uh, this kind of multi-fronted uh, experiential kind of process is really fascinating. And I am, uh, I had not in the kind of photos of 
the videos of, and so now I'm several, <laughs> several points yeah, removed yeah. there, right? But in the photos, I hadn't actually noticed that those were the test strips that were yeah. being vibrated. Yeah. And that's, that's fantastic. This idea of kind of cycling back through the process that created the numbers that were then mm-hmm. being used to produce vibrations that were then vibrating the object that was used to produce the numbers in the first place, right? That cycle is really, really fascinating. Yeah, thanks. Um, And I am uh, struck by and also not particularly surprised by the fact that a lot of this kind of multi-sensory approach was framed around a kind of project or curatorial process specifically oriented toward disability and accessibility of the art and the production. Um, that, that side of this conversation, I think, is really interesting and important. And you have a, an article, a chapter, in the recently published Undoing Diabetes that, uh, in part, is using the framework of disability to try and get at some of these questions about what it means to mm-hmm. live with diabetes um, in some more complex ways and challenge some mm-hmm. of our assumptions. Um, so kind of reflecting back on that process, I guess, that may or may not have influenced a lot of the more current sonification work that you've also been doing in soundscapes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, are there are there any ways that you can kind of how do you understand the way that your focus on accessibility there served as and or still serves as an important kind of uh, operative factor in getting to where you are and how the work is getting produced at this point? Because that's a, um, like I said, a really interesting part of that, that story. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic mm-hmm. question in a, I think a complex one. I think it it, it operates on a few different levels, um, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, part of it is kind of baked into the the concept of the work in the sense of it being a uh, sort of being a critique of the way that numbers are very often used and and the way that they orient bodies towards an idea of what's normal and what's not normal mm-hmm. um and uh, in terms of kind of the accessibility it's interesting because definitely in the, in the context of that exhibition um the idea was to to you know think about accessibility from the uh beginning of creating the work mm-hmm. through to the end not not thinking of it as a an add-on like after the fact that here's the work uh and now let's make it accessible but to think right. of accessibility as having aesthetics of its own mm. uh, as well um and i think that's something that i try to to uh continue to explore in the work that i do uh i i you know i wouldn't say that everything i make is you know 100 percent fully accessible um sure for sure uh after the i mean just a note about that accessibility aspect as well i, I you know after um 
the pandemic, I wanted to continue this work, but the idea of having a, an exhibition where people would come and touch objects and stuff, that, that wasn't really a possibility. Yeah, not anymore. really in the cards. No. So, uh, <laughs> so that's when uh, I started to rethink it a bit. And that's when I started to do some of the first online uh, digital artwork that was still trying to explore the senses and sensorial experience, um, but to deliver it uh, in an online setting. And um, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm particularly attuned to sound, uh, I wanted it to, to be both accessible, you know, um, through visuals and through sound. And, and so um, that's how the, that visual work has carried over in, in this, some of the new iterations of, of, uh, this exploration. Yeah. And that, um, that gets toward some of the sonification projects that you have done related to the blood glucose data, um, that I have found really interesting because, uh, and I've, uh, I've seen a number of these that you have, uh, kind of up on your website and, uh, we have these, uh, really fascinating visuals produced by the vibration of the audio that's being produced by the numbers, right? And then it's showing yeah. the number in that visual production as well. Um, how, how did you get to that sonification part of this? Um, and part of the reason I asked that, I guess it would be a little more uh, foundational, I guess is how, how has this process over these past few years that you've been engaging with your experience with diabetes and these devices that are producing all of these numbers, all this data, how has your work thus far been influencing the ways you understand what these numbers even are and what they mean, what they can be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. Where am I yeah. going to start? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, sonification, how I got to sonification, I guess I'd already, um, I'd already explored it a little bit with some other types of data, with GPS data, mm. um, mm -hmm. maybe it was the first thing. And then it was another project that wasn't about my bodily data, but actually um, someone else's that I that I first got into a bit more of the self tracking uh, stuff, and that that was a collaborative project with a uh, an older choreographer who mm. was wearing a, a Fitbit device and kind of reflecting on that experience of self tracking and some of the the ideals of self optimization that it pushes you towards. Right, and thinking about also uh, being in the milieu of dance. And so she created a choreography um, based on that. And, and I took the Fitbit data and created some, you know, a, a sort of music or a soundtrack to go with it. And I, I think that that was happening actually around the same time as that deaf and disability arts um, exhibition. And so that those two things together really mm. were the, that impetus for working with my own uh, diabetic data, uh, specifically to look at the self-tracking data that I produce. And even in that <clears throat> work I mentioned earlier that was really vibration-oriented, mm -hmm. it began with sonification. Uh, I mean, 
um, the way that I produced those vibrations was first through a process of turning the data into sound that right. was later experienced uh, as vibrations. And so, so I guess that the idea of sonification has kind of been at the core of these explorations for a while. Um, your other part of the question, I think, was around, um, you know, how it makes me think of numbers maybe or or kind of yeah yeah especially the way that those numbers all of this data about your body frankly um you know we are we are trained to understand what those are and what they mean what we can do with them in very particular Mm -hmm. ways and it's always around the context of treatment right understand exactly because that's the purpose of that's creation initially but how has your kind of playing with those those things and ideas change the way that we can think of the possibility of these kinds of uh numbers and data yeah yeah thanks thanks a lot for highlighting that uh, steve that's a that's a big part of what this project is really is to think about this data in other ways out of the biomedical context um and so so for me it really it like gives me a space um to work with this data in which there's kind of um, a remove from that impulse uh, uh, of sort of judging the numbers, you know, Mm. like typically uh, I still experience this on a daily basis. You know, my numbers, when I, when I see what, you know, what my blood sugar is, I have some kind of reaction to it. That's, that's positive or negative. Um, But when I'm kind of working, creating artworks with it, uh, that kind of goes out the window a little bit, and mm. there's a there's a kind of reorientation to those numbers, and through working with them, and especially sonification is interesting because it's it's also time based, uh, and it's been interesting to m- me to reflect on how it forces me to think of some interesting questions around temporality in diabetes, mm-hmm. um, also and context. For sure, context uh, around these numbers, numbers that are all often kind of abstracted away from the context that produced yeah. them and all these factors that are going into it. And then, you know, how can I sort of bring some of that back into uh, the data by by making it material or making it sensorial? Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. Um, and the... That, that that question or conversation about the temporality of diabetes and how treatments have changed that, right? Treatments are central in kind of framing that process mm-hmm. is really, uh, really interesting. Um, one, one side of this work, too, that I think speaks to some of that process that, you're, that you are getting at in recontextualizing. Right mm-hmm. and and providing context has to do with the way that you are and have for a long time used um, sound and other productions in creating soundscapes and mm-hmm. using soundscapes then in other kind of larger experiential projects. And I know that you are um, currently doing some soundscape related work. Um, uh, in the context of diabetes specifically. And so Mm -hmm. uh, before kind of speaking to that project, I am curious how you 
understand or experience the diabetic soundscape itself? Like, what is your soundscape <laughs> with uh, in the context or in relation to diabetes? Yeah, no, I mean, that that is a fantastic question. Um, and I've heard this come up on previous episodes mm. of your show, too, around like alarms and alerts and these yeah. kinds of things, um, which actually aren't a big part of my life because uh, I don't use a pump uh -huh. uh, and I don't use a CGM at the moment either. Um, but I did, uh, there are still a lot of sounds involved and, yeah. and I did uh, have a have a kind of it wasn't a project that's really led anywhere yet, but but for a while, for a, a few months, I made a point of um, just every time I would test my blood sugar, also making an audio recording at the same time. And so I have um, this series of recordings that are both kind of just the context, the, the sort of random place that I happen to be mm -hmm. when I need to test my blood sugar, um, but also that's kind of keyed me into some of some of these sounds of kind of like the lancet device and just yeah. these even popping popping the the uh, canister of test strips open like it's a super loud yes. sound that i never even thought of but it's like, like the I'm pop doing and that then the, the snap when the lid goes yeah, back on exactly. right yeah yes. exactly uh so, and the little shake that you can hear yeah. the test strips inside there yeah right that's uh yeah. i i love the idea of the way that the ambient sound is uh, influential in the way that we can understand the actual active sound associated mm -hmm. with the testing. Like you said, you pull back the little spring in the Lancet device, you hear those kathunks and all those little things that are part of the soundscape of the treatment. But yeah. that context is really fascinating because... I am sure, and you could probably speak to this, I am sure that there are myriad actual uh, uh, spaces and contexts and public-private where you yeah. have to test in exactly. those moments. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the downsides of this this little experiment I did was that I decided to do it during the pandemic and so i actually wasn't going out that much <laughs> it, it was pretty 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 domestic pretty private but um, yeah. but yeah often often i you know it's when i'm active and and doing something outside often that that i test more so normally that that would have come through yeah yeah and that's and that's also a good point this is all happening in the context of the pandemic too and so mm -hmm. the uh the soundscapes of diabetes are different right now yeah. for most people than they had been two years ago, two plus years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so that, that, that does pose some really interesting kind of questions in the large scale for us to, to think through there. Um, one of the projects that I know that you mentioned you have been, uh, well, there's a couple of kind of contemporary current projects that you have, uh, been working on right now, one that has to do with this kind of immersive installation um, that I think speaks to a lot of these themes that we are talking about. Would you, mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit to this project, Sweet Immersion? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a project that I'm doing in a, in the context of an artist residency at the Society for Arts and Technology here in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And so 
they like to have artists come in and work with the technologies that they're developing. And so in my case, there is both a software and a hardware side of this. Um, mm -hmm. And they both have to do with audio spatialization. Um, and uh, so they've created these, what they call audio dice, which are these kind of 12-sided mm. die that are about the size of, I don't know, a basketball or something. Mm -hmm. And on each face of the, of the uh, dice, there's a, um, there's a speaker. So they have five of these. So it's actually like 60 channels of sound. So it's a, mm, it's a really wow. like interesting system. And these, these different die can be moved around in different configurations and, and that sort of thing. So my pro the project that I pitched to them was to create a, a kind of immersive installation, uh, sonic installation that, that is driven completely by uh, diabetic data, by blood sugar data. And to think about here, you know, I mentioned temporality before, and definitely that's part of this work, but also thinking here about spatiality and, and mm. kind of um, uh, playing with this idea uh, of, well, yeah, of immersion, of, of <laughs> the way, in some sense, um, the inside and outside of a body, say, but also how much, you know, having, having diabetes is a kind of immersive experience in a lot of ways. Right, for sure. And so that also uh, kind of points us toward and connects back with one of the other conversations that you had opened up uh, a few minutes ago around how, in the context of the pandemic, really, uh, understanding what an immersive and experiential art project can be in that context, it's really messy. And so doing that online can provide at least a way of getting out at that. And uh, I know that you have a current project that you're working on in that front as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so I have a, another project called Sensing Sugar. Um, and that project is building on some some of that earlier work that I did, uh, as you mentioned, uh, online in the, in the context of the pandemic, but opening it up. And uh, so I'm really excited about this because I've always worked just with so far with my own diabetic data. And this project is mm -hmm. kind of making it possible, uh, or the goal is to make it possible for other diabetics, um, really anyone who tracks their blood glucose, I suppose, um, to, uh, use that data uh, to create a sort of audio-visual um, experience online also. Um, yeah, so, so that's a kind of overview of, of what, what Sensing Sugar is or what it, what it aims to be. Um, there are some aspects of it that, that are challenges, um, I would say, yeah. or, or things, I'm, things I'm a little apprehensive about. Uh, but, but yeah. Such as now I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Such as I. I mean, um, I'm like I'm really excited about making making this work, but but there's also part of me that's like, but is anyone is anyone going to engage with it? Like, is anyone right. going to be willing to do this? Because I understand, you know, this is uh, sensitive data. It's private data, um, and there right. are issues of trust and privacy. Um, there's a lot of complex relationships to the data, which are 
really what I'm interested in. But I also understand that that you know that could be uh, something that's difficult to move past for people contributing to the project. And I also, mm-hmm. I mean, there's also just some technical um, barriers around all these different platforms and different ways of collecting data, different apps, different devices. And so how do I right. create a system that's going to be able to um, work with the data no matter what form it comes in, uh, which is difficult. Yeah, that is tricky. And that's made all the more tricky by the fact that with many of these, uh, uh, there are there's no way to get at that data unless you are using their proprietary online-based software that they have to submit to this company in order to see their own information. And so, yeah, there's a lot of those kind of data-specific yeah, exactly. complexities. Um, and then also, like you said, that that very practical issue of what happens when all of this that's collected looks different among these different platforms Mm -hmm. and getting these to speak to each other gets really messy. Um, In the kind of in conceptualizing this project, uh, I, because that's like the practical side of making it work, right? Conceptually, Mm -hmm. what, what does it do or how does it change the the way that you are thinking about and or the way that it would cause us to think about uh, the numbers, the data, and or bodies, et cetera, when it becomes a collaborative mm-hmm. piece because mm-hmm. collaborative work requires a different kind of connection with the work, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I, you know, I'm still thinking through these things as I as I work on Mm -hmm. it. But um, I I mean, I I think for sure, for me, it's part of part of my interest in, in kind of seeing, trying to, trying to see the different ways or the different perspectives that can emerge from approaching data uh, as something other than just kind of purely designed for management and kind of treatment Mm. of the disease but it's also got to do with um conceptually it's got to do with this this feeling that diabetes really is about relationality i mean it's 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 really a Mm. disease where relationships are key both to humans and non-humans i mean relationships with technologies and devices but relationships with other people and the way that sort of I mean, in the context of this project, it's it's about the circulation of data and the way that data and its circulation and what we do with it produces certain kinds of relationships in the world. Uh, and so what are the mm. kinds of relationships that we're interested in exploring and fostering through that data? And, and are there some opportunities that go beyond uh, s- sort of, you know, the what I think is often very judgment based in terms of, uh, the data, like kind of using it to legitimate a claim or, um, kind of always using it at least in the context of, so what, you know, kind of evaluating how you've performed in the past, what you should do now, Mm. what your future outcome might be. 
Um, so, so to move a little bit away from that and think about in a way that's starting to be a bit more uh, thinking together, hopefully, um, through the collaboration. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And I, I very much appreciate this kind of complex way of engaging that problem of well, relationships are central to what it means to live with and treat diabetes. I, that as a kind of core uh, driving mm-hmm. piece of this conversation is really fascinating. So, um, well, yeah. uh, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been a fantastic conversation and, uh, I'm very much looking forward to these next couple of projects as they come together. Oh, thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah, it's been, it's been great to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So Sam uh, is an interesting guy. Yeah, I loved this interview. I loved, you know, he's an artist. So of course I'm drawn to that. Yeah, but totally. There were some really great topics of conversation. Yeah, I obviously, uh, when I go into these interviews, I obviously have some idea of the direction that will generally go. But uh, I'm always, every, every time I do one of these, uh, I'm always kind of surprised throughout these interviews Mm -hmm. every time, right? We get into conversation, things open up, they go in all of these directions that obviously I can't plan for, understand, plan for. It's not like these are scripted. Right. Um, It's also not like we set up a strict uh, outline for discussion either. Sure. But between us. And so it opens up. And some of the ways that he was talking about sound and diabetes was really fascinating. And we've started delving into some of that in other conversations. Yeah. And I, I think what's most interesting about it is there's all, of course the sounds that are like obvious, right? Like obvious diabetic sounds, like the clicking of your blood tester and like your pump or things. And it was interesting because he was talking about the sounds outside of what we've usually talked about with like, beeping alarms and like technology kind of centered things, but the more kind of basic things that you probably overlook a lot of the time because they're just like normal to you. You know, you test your blood a million times or you, you know, roll an insulin bottle or, you know, there's just Mm. lots of different things that are common as with anything in yeah. your life, you know, the, it's not like you think of like all the sounds that you make every day when you're brushing your teeth or, right. you know, those things that you do every day. And all the little things that aren't directly part of, for example, the brushing, right? If this was like our example of brushing yeah. your teeth, there's all these little things there that aren't the brushing action. Obviously, you've got the like, <laughs> that's <laughs> the central kind of yeah. sound of brushing. But what about the uh the very slight kind of clink sound when your toothbrush touches the cup or you know your sink will have a very particular kind of sound made not only by the little handles or knobs Mm -hmm. but the way the water happens to hit in the basin what the basin's made of all these little things change all of the soundscape of brushing your teeth right um and the same would be the case with diabetes. So let me ask you, 
Uh-oh, here Are we there go. any parts of the diabetic soundscape that, as we've kind of listened back through this interview with Sam and we have started talking into some of these things, are there any parts of the diabetic soundscape that are maybe not always front and center and that we haven't necessarily talked about a lot? Hmm. <laughs> I, wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a great question, obviously. <laughs> I would have to think about. Um, yeah. And I sprung this on you. So I know. I don't Jeez. want to. Uh, <laughs> putting me on the putting spot. On spot. But putting you I on mean, the spot I'm, helps. I'm trying to think of, I don't know, things that like are happening while you're doing these things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean... One thing that came to my mind just now as you were talking is like the sound of uh, the sound that you make when you pull the straw off the back of a juicy juice box. (laughs) Right. So you've got that little bit of the crinkly uh, like cellophane plastic around the straw. Mm -hmm. But the way that the the glue disconnects from the box itself. Mm -hmm. Right. That that little sound there is just part (laughs) of the process. Right. Yeah. And that's part of treating a low, which is part of living with a diet, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the most common. I don't know. I I guess what my mind initially went to was the cat bag. <laughs> mm. I have this bag with cats on it. It's like a little zip pouch that I keep all my insulin pump extras and things in. And so like the sound of the bag, like as you pick it up, has this very distinct sound when you pick it up Mm -hmm. because it has all this stuff in it like all these contraptions all these loose things in there that like I don't want to lose um so that's kind of what my mind went to that's a good one but that's a good one and it's particular zipper is a unique Mm -hmm. uh sound compared to any other zippers involved Uh, we've already talked about the sound of the zipper of the blood tester a little bit Mm -hmm. in a previous episode i think when we were talking about some of those uh unexpected ways that it that your devices are present right but yeah so you've got the zipper on there you've got the kind of that it's like a dampened rattle thing (laughs) in the bag right yeah um but part of what's so interesting there right is uh, he was talking about how every time he was going to test his his blood he was recording it as yeah. part of this pro- this particular project. And uh, one of the things that I am just fascinated about is the way that he is thinking about how all of this is taking place in context, right? There are other things going on around us. It's part of everyday life. It's all these things. And so capturing the sound of the actions alongside all of that context, right? The ambient sounds, maybe the sound of the dog behind us mm-hmm. as she creeps into our recordings every once in a while. Or, <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, we don't live on a super busy street, but busy enough. And yeah. so there's cars going past and um, all kinds of other little things. The sound of the the heater or AC blowing through the vents and all these little things that are part of the experience, right? 
even though they're not the action. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting in an art sense. And especially when he was talking about accessibility and experience, Mm. you know, um, that, you know, for people who are deaf, maybe don't experience all of those sounds that kind of are attributed to a lot of these things. And so how he has sort of thought through different ways of, you know, showing his art and creating these experiences of touch and sound and feel and Mm. visuals so that there's like different ways that you're experiencing all of these things. Yeah. Because, you know, there are deaf and or blind diabetics. Yeah. Right. They experience these things. Right. And so their soundscape may be experienced differently but mm-hmm. that's part of the point yeah right and so and this gets at some of that that work that he does with vibration and the focus on vibration in producing um various forms of art because of the way that sound is vibration yeah and so soundscapes matter in the context of deaf diabetic experience mm-hmm. right because those vibrations are present they're just present differently for their experience, right? Right, um, and the way that this, of course, it was being conceptualized within the context of a show mm-hmm. that was devoted to building out artistic production and curating that work mm-hmm. with accessibility as the foundational piece. Yeah, and I, how he mentioned that it wasn't just making it accessible after you've already like made the thing, yeah, right? Tack it's it on it's like making it accessible as you're thinking of the project in its, you know, beginning phases so that mm-hmm. the way you're creating it has all of these things in mind. I think that's a really great way to be creating anything, right? Creating art, creating experiences, you know, thinking about different ways and different, you know, formats to experience things. Yeah, and the way we build out our world, Yeah. right? This mirrors a lot of this language around universal design in the context of architecture and disability mm-hmm. because this is an artistic kind of space or expression of a large-scale social institutional problem, mm-hmm. which is the world is built for able-bodied and able-minded people. Yeah. And accessibility is usually conceptualized as the thing that you add to the already existing project Mm -hmm. or thing that you are building out in the world so that, quote unquote, they can access it too. But the point is that that already assumes that they are not part of why you're doing what you're doing. Right. And that's a real problem. And so this universal design approach to art production and curation is fascinating and yeah. really important um i uh that that project was happening for him at the same time that he was talking about this fitbit project as well mm-hmm. right where he was working with another person and collaborating um using their fitbit data to produce sonifications or sonifying that those numbers mm-hmm to produce visual or material kind of art productions. And that's what got him into then the space of using it for 
uh, in the context of his diabetes. And I think the big piece there that I think is probably the biggest takeaway of this conversation for me was the way that he's talking through how and why he's choosing to use the data at all in his work. Yes, his art, but also his research, right. potentially the way that it makes its way into the classroom. We didn't talk about, but that, that I could see that being a thing as well, is all about trying to re-envision how we can understand the data and what it is and why we why we engage with it. Yeah. I, it's so fascinating because we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, feelings associated with numbers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. High blood sugars, low blood sugars, whatever the numbers are, right? Um, and I loved when he was talking about sort of reimagining how those numbers are interpreted by us and mm-hmm. reimagining how we think about those numbers. And he kind of touched on kind of his concern with his latest project in getting people to participate because those numbers are, you know, private or, you know, people are insecure about sharing those numbers or, you know, those things. And why are those feelings created? Like, why are we having those feelings? And I think that's really, you know, a huge part of being someone with diabetes, right? Is how you feel about the number, these arbitrary numbers, right? And they've become not arbitrary because they mean something, right? You test and you're low Mm -hmm. and that creates feelings, right? Panic or stress or anxiety or shame or worry or guilt or yeah. Right. With high numbers, especially Mm -hmm. um, is a lot of that shame and guilt and, you know, feeling like you're not good enough or feeling like you're not taking care of yourself or all these like associated feelings with these numbers, right? It's sort of hard to wrap your head around when you kind of talk about it, talk yourself in circles, but. For sure. And the part of this that's so hard to kind of unravel and understanding how this is all made and Mm -hmm. created in, in experiences is that we're talking about emotion related feeling mm-hmm. and we're talking about physiological feeling sensing sure right sensory experience of your own body at yeah. the same time yeah and so these emotional responses are tied to social definitions of these numbers and mm-hmm. what they mean meaning is created meaning is human sure right regardless of what is happening biologically with your body that's producing the human-made numbers that code this human-made meaning, (laughs) et cetera, right? But the point is that we then have these emotions tied to what it actually physically feels like to be high Mm -hmm. or what it physically feels like to be low. Sure. Those map together. And so unraveling what feeling Mm -hmm. is associated with, let's say, you know, a... 250 blood glucose reading, right? Or 300 blood glucose reading. Feeling is way more complicated than even the super complicated emotion tied to those. Right. And how your body sort of reacts to those feelings. And I think when you're low, your body has this automatic like stress trigger because it's trying to 
tell you, right? Like, like hey, I need to stay alive. Hey, <laughs> like, I'm panicking because I your body's going to stop functioning. <laughs> right? right. And I think with high blood sugars, it's a lot more complicated because it's not as immediate. Mm-hmm. Those feelings aren't, you know, the consequences of high blood sugars aren't always as immediate, right? Right. And if you're feeling those high blood sugars a lot, you may not even notice. I think we kind of talked about um, in an early episode when, you know, high blood sugars were kind of your normal, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I think we were talking about this with uh, Josh Iddings. Yeah, because right? of his misdiagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't even really notice how bad he was feeling until, you know, he was diagnosed and then then, having mm -hmm. like proper treatment for those numbers. And I felt that a lot, um, you know, when you're trying to lower your blood sugars, like when I was pregnant and you're trying to keep your blood sugars at this really low you know, yeah, like constant shockingly state. Low constant. <laughs> and it was like really hard because it's you're like 75 like or 80 tired and yeah, your body is like not, you know, when you're usually like treating something that low, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this roller coaster of you just sit there. Right. <laughs> oh and I remember it was brutal. Yeah. It was and, hard to function. And again, right. That the physiological feeling is then mapped onto the emotional feeling and those judgment calls, right? Because he was talking about essentially the value that we place on the numbers mm-hmm. because they are positive or they are negative. Right. Right. And that binary thinking about the numbers is really problematic. Yeah. Right. It creates the necessity of judgment based on value. Right. Well, and when you map that good bad onto yourself as good or bad like you could have this bad number but then are you Mm -hmm. putting that like mapping that onto you as a person like i'm bad because this number is bad right right (laughs) right because as we've talked about in other episodes diabetes is part of one's identity Mm -hmm. right it it is as much as as we may or may not want to claim it as a central part of our identity, it still does influence that. And so when you map those judgment-based readings of the numbers Mm -hmm. onto, like you said, your selfhood, your actual person, then we get into these even kind of deeper spirals Mm -hmm. that can result from this. And so his notion that maybe there are ways that we can start to think about and engage with these numbers outside the context of biomedicine mm-hmm. and treatment. Where they live, because that's their purpose, that's right. where they were created, that's where they're used. But if we can start to engage them outside of that context, mm-hmm. in his claim, through art, it provides a way for us to recode what kinds of feelings and experiences we are associating with the numbers themselves. That's huge. Yeah. Right. Um, that's a big project, obviously. <laughs> right. And this is, right. The, this is the theory. This is the basis of the work. And 
you know, I, even though we didn't necessarily get there, I'm sure if we were to talk through this, he would probably be able to identify and talk through ways that it has worked and ways that it has missed as well. Sure. And that's part of the, the importance of artistic production in general, though, right? Right. I mean, obviously, not all projects go the way you think they are, but that, that is sometimes what creates the most interesting, you know, outcomes. I think he kind of mentioned yeah. how he wasn't anticipating how some of the his test strip project was right. you know creating different visuals and things i think was that what he said i, I... uh probably <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to remember the part i'm in the depths of our conversation now so i can't remember but i know that that part though that you're referring to where he was essentially creating vibration from the numbers mm -hmm. and then using that vibration to animate the test strips. And it was yeah. doing really interesting, remarkable right. things as he was filming it happen, right? And it, again, that's that surprising uh, mm -hmm. process of artistic production that sometimes stuff comes out that you didn't know could or would. Yeah, I think, I think most of the time you have sort of that aha moment in yeah. projects where it's like either, wow, this is amazing, or like, oh, crap, this isn't what Whoops. I expected. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's part of learning and creating, right? Yeah, totally. Experimentation. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that's happened with our show, even, <laughs> yeah. right? There are a number of things that we've done, ways that we've approached conversations, mm -hmm. uh, introduced people or introduced breads or whatever, the topics or whatever. Some have worked well and like little things came out that were surprising in other cases it's like eh, well uh, i probably would do this a little different next time right <laughs> but that's that's part of the process and i think the the goal of creating all of that as an immersive experience ties into a lot of this uh, larger notion than he was getting at of you know what living with diabetes is an immersive experience. Yeah. Right? It involves every one of your senses in different and complicated ways. Mm -hmm. And the context matters. Yeah. Right? And so this point that he was making, and I love this because I, uh, you know, I, uh, I do work on kind of complicating our understandings of data. And so this, is, <laughs> this makes sense. But the notion of bringing the context back into the data mm -hmm. is amazing. That notion is fantastic because the whole point, part of the problem that I've identified in some of my work too with the production of these numbers is that they are totally extracted from the context. Mm -hmm. The context of your body, the context of your experience, your experiences. what you're living through in that moment. Absolutely. They are extracted. There is no context to mm -hmm. the numbers that come out. Mm -hmm. And so we have to bring the context back. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I just had a doctor's appointment. And when you talk about, because they read, obviously, these graphs of numbers that you have mm -hmm. um, from your insulin pump. And <laughs> then being asked, oh, do you remember what happened like on this Wednesday when you had this high blood sugar? And it's like... Um, <laughs> that was three weeks ago. What? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's every time there's this question like, oh, well, what happened? Like, 
you know, was this something that is a usual thing or was this some outlier like, oh, you had this high blood sugar, like what happened here? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I cannot tell no you, idea. like, what did you have? <laughs> you know, what did you breathe? Like what? It's like I was trying to think of something to compare it to to like ask somebody like because it's not even like it's even more complicated than asking like what did you eat on this day because you could like attribute that to like what you're doing right mm -hmm. but like what happened with this high blood sugar well like I don't even know right because <laughs> like how am I supposed to remember you have every day you have this context for what's happening right and, and it's so nonstop. being asked to remember what happened on wednesday last week when you had this blood sugar it's like uh like cracking your brain you're like i can barely remember um, yesterday thank you very much <laughs> and obviously some of those are like outliers and so maybe you do remember it happening but you don't remember like oh well i ate this 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 and this and then this you know yeah, totally. and maybe that's just me. I think a lot of times I'm like, there's too much of this in my head, and I have to just let go of it. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, we talk about this a lot. Sometimes I test my blood, and if it's within like a good range, I will not remember that number seconds after. Yeah. Like, see, so right. like, oh, what were you? And I'm like, I, I literally don't remember, but it's probably it okay. Fine. And then I'll look yeah. at it. And it's like 101, and it's yeah. like, yep. There was nothing in, like, no reason to keep that data in my head. <laughs> right. Right. So. And even in talking through this, right, even as you're talking through this, you're using that language that's coding the numbers yes. positive. Right? Yeah. Because it was a good number, is what you said, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it is, it's baked into the, the very notion of how we treat and understand what diabetes is. Yeah. And if we are going to, you know, critically engage all of this stuff in ways that can be productive yeah. and more helpful for people. And like realistic, honestly. And realistic, right? yeah, because totally. you're, <laughs> that is how you have to like navigate your life, right? You have right. to. And so I love how he's rethinking ways to talk about the data and ways to think about it because maybe that can kind of re- reassign how we're talking about our diabetes or thinking about it because you know we can talk all day about you know don't call them bad and good numbers but like internally enough, right like yeah, yeah. It, it's not gonna you just change get rid anything. of those words yeah but the, the very structure for how these numbers are created why we're using and looking at them mm -hmm. and then how we apply them and in what context? All of that's still there if you right. don't use the positive, negative, good, bad <laughs> language. Yeah, right? and you're still assigning how you feel to those numbers, right. right? So you feel good when you're this number. You feel bad when you're this number. So there's so many complicated right. layers in within those labelings, right? Totally. Totally. And uh, this, uh, you know, at, at, its, at its core... I think some of these are opened up, I don't want to say explained by, but at least uh, informed by uh, this other kind of major component of a lot of the way he's thinking through his work. And that is the notion that diabetes is fundamentally relational. Yeah. Right. And so uh, oftentimes you think about a 
particular chronic illness or disability as uh, inherently internal and individual. Mm-hmm. The truth is, it can't be. Yeah. Period. Diabetes cannot be understood that way. Right. Because it requires insulin injection. Right. To live and survive. Period. So that is a relationship between humans, bodies, and technologies at its very core kind of uh, level. And so this whole notion that, well, then we need to start thinking about all of these relationships a little bit more, mm-hmm. right? And critically about how those relationships are built and how we're using them. Thanks for listening and coming along with us on this episode. We're very grateful to Sam for being with us today and helping us engage this conversation. Yeah. Uh, huge thank you again, Dr. Samuel Tulin. As usual, uh, go ahead and like and subscribe wherever it is that you're listening. Head over to diabetic.com for more on the breads and the conversations around uh, the way that we are complicating understandings of chronic illness. Oh.